0: Hello, I'm Dr. Deepak Bhatt from Brigham Women's Hospital and Harvard Medical School and Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Invasive Cardiology. I'm really happy to have with me today Dr. Hadi Lisha, who is an Interventional Cardiovascular Specialist at Ascension St. Thomas Harp in Murfreesboro in Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, He's an Assistant Professor of Medicine at the University of Tennessee Health Science Center and Faculty in the Cardiovascular Disease Fellowship Program. His main clinical interests really they include several hot areas, but um, also include complex coronary interventions. He does default radial access. Um, maybe I'd say that really should be everyone doing that, but uh, it isn't. And uh, he's been a leader in that area. Is interested and uh, does a lot of work in coronary microvascular dysfunction and critical limb ischemia, in the management of complex peripheral artery disease and uh, venous interventions as well. That's an increasingly important part of the interventional cardiology portfolio these days. Uh, He's very passionate about innovation in cardiovascular intervention, uh, doing lots of work clinically and research-wise to optimize procedural safety and clinical outcomes and minimizing the invasiveness of interventional techniques. Uh, I've been really impressed with a lot of the things that he's posted on social media and also published in the peer-reviewed literature. It's important, I think, these days to do both, to get the word out, to get out uh, educational messages. And uh, we just published in Journal of nasive Cardiology something that he wrote. Uh, it was accepted before the current situation where there is a global contrast shortage, but we just published it uh, very recently. It's a paper called Zeroing on gadolinium to complement intravascular ultrasound in zero contrast percutaneous coronary intervention. I thought it was really interesting, pre-global contrast shortage, but now, of course, we're all struggling with this global uh, shortage. I'm thinking things will get better, uh, uh, sort of uh, curfews and other things, lockdowns are getting lifted in Shanghai. There was an issue with a particular vendor's plant in Shanghai that is at the genesis of much of the contrast shortage, it's kind of disappointing to think there's just one choke point in in contrast production, but but it it turns out that like many things in supply chain these uh, days, uh, there was a a particular choke point. But at any rate, uh, for the uh, short and intermediate term, we're gonna have a contrast shortage. But even beyond this period, there's going to be patients where if we can get away with less use of ionated contrast, if we can get away with no use of ionated contrast, There's some patients that that will be really critical. So maybe, Dr. Alicia, you can tell us in a few words what you were talking about in this paper, what you were investigating, what you're recommending. It's really a fascinating, timely paper.
1: Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be with you. And uh, I just uh, wanted to start the topic with, uh, you know, basically the renalism concept of uh, doing high-risk patients who do have renal insufficiency. And that was a year ago. When I was really delving deep into that, it bothered me that we still do ultra-low contrast to be able to evaluate flow dynamics, which is something that intravascular ultrasound cannot evaluate, evaluate for perforations. So obviously angiography is still very important in the safety aspect of the procedure. A lot of experts have kind of pushed for an echocardiogram at the end of an IVS-based PCI To rule out pericardial effusions, but that has downsides. Obviously, it can be not very sensitive. Uh, The perforation can be small and develop within a few hours. Uh, The perforation cannot be sometimes detected. Even a pericardial effusion can be focal, posterior, and not seen by echo. And we're just doing it 10 to 15 minutes after procedure. So the level of comfort and the medical legal aspect of ultra-low of zero contrast pci bothers a few interventionalists who use a small amount probably less than 10 ml but still those 10 ml's are killing a few nephrons and uh, yeah. if we can get to a zero absolutely zero with the safety of having angiography this is where it bothered me that that gap in interventional cardiology has not been covered and to be honest with you i just went back and looked up the literature and tried to find alternatives and one of the things that I did is I brought a gadolinium vial from MRI, told them, would you, can I borrow this for a second? And went up to the cath lab and placed it on the cath lab table and fluorod. And I, I was amazed. And you'll see it in the article, how well visualized it is. It's a rare metal gadolinium that has iodine in it that can attenuate radiation two-thirds as much as an iodinated contrast agent uh, from a physical standpoint. So I was pleased to see that it's so radioopaque, and obviously went back to the literature. There are a few case reports, case series, and the 20 to 30 patient range in terms of volume that indicate the relative safety of that. And they were studied mostly in patients who have major allergy to iodinated contrast, coarse renal insufficiency, thyrotoxicosis, and all these uh, situations, and I thought, why don't we complement the amazing IVUS-based PCI that we love, and then finally, at the end of the procedure, complement IVUS findings with angiography findings, um, and specifically, speed of flow, potential for embolization, potential for perforations, things that we cannot see on IVUS, and this is how it came about.
0: Yeah, really fantastic, the evolution of your thinking on this. Maybe you can just share with our audience the actually how to do it. Maybe even before getting into that, let's just discuss is it okay to do it? I think a lot of cardiologists, interventional cardiologists, physicians are nervous about gadolinium in patients that have kidney disease and in particular are fearing NSF, uh, which is a um, a disease that's been uh, described uh, pretty widely that can occur in relation to gadolinium administration, nephrogenic systemic uh, fibrosis is what I'm talking about. It's actually pretty rare, uh, but this is something that got a lot of attention a few years ago and I think scared off folks who maybe were starting to use gadolinium in their peripheral and even coronary procedures. I, I must say there was a period of time when I was using gadolinium, uh, this is back when renal stenting was a little bit more popular <laughs> than it is these days, but using it for those sorts of procedures. There were certainly some issues of cost, uh, but there were also concerns of NSF and indeed of prompting nephropathy, that is, gadolinium contrast-induced nephropathy. So uh, what about the safety, both respect to uh, nephropathy and with respect to NSF specifically?
1: Absolutely. And that's obviously obviously was on top of my concern when we went into that direction. We wanted to look up the absolute safety. The thing that encouraged me a lot is there's a combined statement from the American College of Radiology and the Kidney Society Foundation about the appropriateness of using the group two and possibly group three gadolinium-based contrast media in patients with GFR less than 30. If the clinician thinks that The benefit of the cardiac MRI outweighs the tiny little risk of at most of 0.07% NSF with the group two gadolinium agents. Now, where did this NSF come from? It came from the group one gadolinium agents. And for the audience who's not very uh, familiar with gadolinium, mostly radiology obviously deals with that. There are three groups and three groups of gadolinium-based contrast media, group one, two, and three. And they differ basically from their chemical properties and the ligand that is connected to the actual gadolinium heavy metal and based on its ionic versus non-ionic status. Uh, Pretty complex chemistry, but long story short, in 2012, uh, the United States started kind of backing off of producing a group one, just because most of the NSF cases were linked to that. And back in the day, there was no firm dose limit and we noticed that uh, the incidence of NSF is directly dose-related. So there was a dose max that was kind of uh, predetermined, and the group two agents were extensively studied by the American College of Radiology. Of course, we're talking thousands of patients and deemed to be safe for even end-stage renal disease patients to get a cardiac MRI for viability, let's say. It is what our institution here does. So that kind of encouraged me from that perspective, especially if we're going to use doses that small. And especially that most of the time, those patients that we are picking for PCI are patients who would benefit from almost a mortality standpoint. So the risk, the benefit of mortality benefit of a procedure versus the 0.07% at most risk of NSF, I think is a good compromise. And it's at least lower than the risk of contrast-induced nephropathy by using iodinated contrast, which is also uh, linked to mortality and adverse outcomes in general. So that's kind of the thought process behind it. So long story short, the safety of group two gadolinium-based contrast media is now established, and it's not wrong to administer a small dose, and we can talk about specifics in those patients.
0: Yeah, really terrific, uh, thoughtful answers. And you know, just since you mentioned this, I want to clear this up for the audience. You you did mention that gadolinium contains uh, iodine in it. Is there any concern if one has a contrast allergy to conventional, you know, contrast dye in terms of using gadolinium? Because someone hearing that might say, oh. You know, there's that old thought of, quote, unquote, iodine allergy. That's why we used to, in fact, say, oh, you know, if yeah. you have a seafood allergy, you can't yeah. have contrast dye. All that's been debunked, of course. But if you can just clarify, is there any concern in using gadolinium in that patient that states they have maybe anaphylaxis to contrast dye?
1: Yeah, as you know, the, the large majority, 99.9% of those allergies are not related to iodine itself, uh, to all the other molecules connected to it. So there's no significant cross-reactivity between them, like the shellfish, uh, like you mentioned, shellfish and contrast. We see that all the time. So uh, the iodine specifically has not been an issue. And actually, there's a case report that was published by my colleagues at Henry Ford, who had to use that for a patient for severe anaphylaxis with contrast, despite all the steroids and everything else. So they used gadolinium in that case and absolutely no allergy. It's obviously an N of one. But that kind of confirms the lack of suspicion of iodine cross-reactivity.
0: Yeah, no, that's a great point. And for anyone that wants more information, if you look at Dr. Leishaw's article, that CTO case uh, with a patient with conventional contrast dye and is discussed and referenced. Uh, so uh, then let's get to the how-to. So at least when done cautiously with more modern gadolinium agents, Uh, The risk of NSF seems pretty low. The risk of further kidney compromise seems relatively low. But what amount of contrast can be used? How should it be diluted? And what ratio? What should it be diluted with? If you could just review that for the audience.
1: Absolutely. So first of all, I want to make sure the audience knows this is not a complete replacement of iodinated contrast because at most what you're going to get is 7 to 10 ml of actual product to inject. So this would be your final injection after an intravascular ultrasound-based PCI. This is not like we do a diagnostic angiogram, multiple shots, and then we do the PCI, we puff, we puff, and then you would reach a massive dose that is not allowed. What we're talking about here is the ultra-low contrast PCI mindset, where you have diagnostic images to start with, or if you want to take them with regular contrast, less than 10 ml, and then proceed with a PCI with an intravascular ultrasound-based strategy. And at the end, in order to determine flow characteristics and rule out complications, this is where gadolinium comes in. So that's number one. Number two, there is a 0.1 milliliter per kilo upper limit on all the group two agents. And it's usually zero, uh, one millimol per milliliter. So it's millimol per kilo or 0.1 milliliter per kilo. So a 70 kilogram man, basically seven mLs of gadolinium. Now, you can give that seven mL without any dilution. The issue is, I think you would kind of benefit from having a larger volume to take two shots. So if uh, it has been described in the literature as diluted two-third gadolinium, one-third saline or two-third gadolinium, one-third contrast. So you would be using two mLs of contrast instead of 10. And there are uh, cases where it was used only by itself, gadolinium by itself. And obviously the visibility is a tiny bit reduced. It, uh, again, it attenuates x-rays two-thirds of what an iodinated contrast agent does. But I think overall... Uh, if it is diluted one to one with gadolinium, so if you have seven mLs and you take seven mLs of saline, and now you have 14 mLs, and you can easily rule out perforation even with a suboptimal opacification like we really need to. Your job is to make sure the flow is TIMI3 and perforation. You're not doing it for stent optimization. This is going to be an IVIS answer.
0: Yeah, no, those are really terrific practical points. So maybe as a general principle, I'd say dilute with saline 50% and, uh, you know, get away with no more than total of 10 cc's use of the gadolinium, and then probably you'll be in good shape. Would you agree? Absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, I I think these are really terrific practical suggestions for coronary angiography. I think it also applies to, you know, certain peripheral cases. Like I said, You know, I've had uh, situations with really tight bilateral renal artery stenosis, you know, patient heading towards dialysis, believed to be on the basis of of that renal artery stenosis, where I've used gadolinium, I think, you know, with a good result. That can also be another situation, too, where obviously you want to minimize a typical contrast I use. You also want to minimize gadolinium use. But Perhaps can 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 do that with that approach. Any thoughts about the periphery? I
1: know you're very yes, so The periphery. Obviously, the fact that we can use CO2 below the diaphragm is great, but obviously it has its own certain specific limitations. But where it comes is peripheral interventions above the diaphragm. So yesterday I did a subclavian intervention on a renal patient, and of course I cannot use CO2. Most of it, it was done by IVIS, but that last shot to make sure there are no extravasation, any complication, I could have done it with gadolinium without any major issues. And of course, now there is an issue now. I, I, I need the community to kind of support that and to research to kind of flourish in that department so that we can feel way more comfortable convincing our hospitals that this is a safe thing to do. And of course, this is early into the practice, but it's something that patients would benefit from tremendously.
0: Yeah. And, and, and I haven't looked very, very recently, but um, uh, when I was doing this uh, more frequency, I know cost was a really big issue. Uh, I don't know if that's still as much the case.
1: I was pleasantly surprised to see that it's a few bucks more expensive than VisiPake. Um, oh, wow. So
0: the times have changed. That's great to hear that and the agents are both safer to- and cheaper.
1: It is like almost nothing compared to the other, you know, it's, it's cheaper than a catheter. Let me put it this way.
0: Wow. That's really terrific. So a lot of advances, you know, I think many people may still think of, of gadolinium, the group one agents, uh, you know, the cost issues in the past, but, but times have changed. The data have changed. I'm really glad that you've summarized this so nicely in this uh, journal of Invasive of cardiology article uh, before we close any parting thoughts for
1: the audience? I would say obviously read a lot about gadolinium before you use it, Uh, Complement that with intravascular imaging and use it only as your last shot. This is uh, the part that uh, the message I wanna relay, not that it's a, you know, you can inject right and left. It is just one or two injections that you're gonna be able to do. And that's what mostly we want to do. So uh, hopefully this will, uh, the, the data will continue to accumulate about the safety of these agents that are chemically shown to be less inducing of uh, extracellular deposition and fibrosis, which is the mechanism by which NSF happens. And we hope industry can also support a l- large trials that uh, confirm the safety aspect.
0: Yeah, no, no, those are really terrific points. You, know, you, you mentioned one thing, just to clarify for the audience. In case people don't know, you you mentioned CO2. Great below the diaphragm, stay away above the diaphragm. Do you want to just explain why to the audience?
1: Sure. So CO2, obviously, even if it it does induce ischemia for a few seconds, the CO2 is a soluble gas. But for a few seconds, you have big bubbles, and you can see them on the angiogram that induce transient ischemia. And that's why when we use it for uh, limb ischemia patients, they hurt a lot when we inject it. And we usually do it when patients on general anesthesia they have one vessel runoff and rejecting CO2, that hurts a lot because it does induce transient ischemia. Now in the legs and below the diaphragm, all of that can be you know, tolerated by patients without any major issues for a few seconds. But in the brain and in the heart, any bubble that stays there for a few seconds has morbidity consequences. So if I'm doing a subclavian angiogram and obviously some of it will go through the vertebral, uh, or even, I mean, the hand is obviously a little bit more sensitive than, than the foot when it comes to ischemia too. So overall, and I'm sure there is some, hopefully there will be some animal studies to confirm that this does not have clinical implications. I hope someday we can confirm we can do it in the heart in a responsible fashion. That would be really a major breakthrough.
0: Yeah, I agree with all your points. And just a final point, you know, you nicely made is that we're talking about gadolinium, but, you know, intravascular ultrasound has to be part of the approach to minimizing contrast use. You really can't just do the one without the other. And, and, you know, we were doing a lot of OCT at our place, but then with the contrast shortage, you know, we uh, moved back to doing a lot of IVUS, which I'm quite happy with. I've always really liked IVUS. But um, any thoughts there about OCT without using contrast? At least in my hands, the pictures never really looked that good. I couldn't ever seem to really get a bloodless field. Uh, but uh, do you have any uh, thoughts about um, using OCT uh, with other substances not involving contrast dye?
1: In all disclosures, I don't use OCT heavily. I used to use it about five years ago. But from what I understand from the experts in the field, there's a lot of research going on right now on the sensitivity and specificity of saline-based OCT. And obviously, there are some issues about the physical characteristics of saline versus contrast with regards to calibration and determination of exact sizing, because it's micrometer dependent. So saline is an option. As you know, dextran used to be an option, but it has not been very promising due to multiple issues as allergy and anaphylaxis and other issues related to the compound itself. There's a lot of you know, focus on the alternative to contrast also in OCT, which is going to revive that entire industry.
0: Yeah, I agree with everything you said. Again, at least in my hands, uh, without contrast injection, I've not been able to get great OCT images, Though some other people report um, that, that they can, uh, so myself at least, uh, when I'm trying to avoid contrast or when there's a global contrast shortage, you know, I default to IVUS um, when I feel there's uh, adjunctive imaging needed, and certainly in these patients where you're trying to do minimal or zero contrast, uh, IVUS has got to be part of it. Well, this has barely been, been a terrific discussion. I've learned a lot from you and uh, from your paper. So you know, we just touched upon the high points here, but for the audience, I really. Would refer you to this JIC uh, or Journal of Invasive Cardiology paper that is just chock full of great information. Uh, Dr. Alicia, thank you so much for uh, writing the paper and for sharing your insights on this uh, audio recording and potentially, if you're watching it, you a know, video recording for the audience. But but these are really practical, important insights, and you know, keep up the great work you're doing
1: in the field. Thank you so much. It's an honor and privilege to speak with you. Uh, you are one of my role models. <laughs>
0: Oh, well, thank you. That's very kind. All the best. Thanks again. Thank
1: you.